0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: I was as smart as my peers, but I was struggling with this. I didn't want to be exposed as someone who couldn't do something that everyone else could do. Year 7 was not my friend. I really became very self-conscious about my suddenly very stark inability to... Do the things that were being asked of me and that doubled down on my oh well i just don't like school even though i knew that i was a very curious and creative kid school became enemy number one dyslexia wasn't even on the table it had never been discussed as a possibility as something that i might be dealing with
2: When I was a high school teacher, and let's be honest, (laughs) that's a long time ago, I saw a lot of kids who struggled with reading. We knew a bit about dyslexia then, but there was still a lot of myths, like that it was a problem with vision or that it was somehow linked to intelligence. Now we know that's not the case. Around 10% of people experience dyslexia, maybe more, and it can have a huge impact, not just on a student's education, but also their self-esteem and their mental health. However, with the right support, which doesn't have to cost you an arm and a leg, you can help your dyslexic child to catch up and to thrive. I'm Maggie Dent, and in this Parental Anything, what is dyslexia? How is it managed? And how can you support your child if they're struggling to read or write? First, let's bust some of these old and lingering myths about dyslexia. No, it's not related to intelligence. There's a really broad spectrum of people with dyslexia, including Albert Einstein. It's not connected to eyesight either, and phonics is not the magic bullet that some people think it is. Two of Sarah Assome's children are dyslexic, so she's spent years busting myths and fighting for more inclusive classrooms. She's also a primary school principal, and she heads up the Parent Advocacy Network Code Read. Sarah, what exactly is dyslexia?
3: Dyslexia is a specific learning disorder, or some would like to prefer to call it a difficulty. It's neurological, and it often runs in, in families, so they can often be more than one child it might come through a parent as well. It predominantly gives challenges in reading, but it can be comorbid with other challenges, which can cross over. So students with dyslexia may also have challenges such as ADHD or dysgraphia, which is difficulty with writing, or dyscalculia, which is difficulty with numbers. So dyslexia, dis means difficulty, lexia means words. So it's a difficulty with words is the very simple answer.
2: Dyslexia has been around as a term for a long time, so it's, if it's widely accepted that it impacts one in ten, do you think it, there's a chance it could be underdiagnosed, Sarah?
3: Yes, and I certainly some other countries are saying it's more like one in five. Um, so either way, whether it's one in five or one in ten, they're in every classroom. And I have heard it said in the past, oh, I've never taught a student with dyslexia. Well, that just can't be true. So yes, I would say it's undiagnosed in many cases.
2: Now, what are the challenges that dyslexia can bring for our children.
3: Yeah, so obviously, the primary challenge is it's a difficulty in accurate and fluent word reading and spelling predominantly. That's why it's picked up pretty early in school, hopefully, um, when students start to learn to read. But it can have secondary difficulties, such as then difficulties with reading comprehension as well, because the students aren't reading as much as their peers. They're not getting exposed to that high level vocabulary and background knowledge, so they then struggle with reading comprehension. Other challenges it might bring along the way are they do struggle with their working memory, students with dyslexia. So they will struggle to retain instructions and follow classroom routines and sometimes organisation as well. And lots of those skills can cross over into other subjects areas, whether that's mathematics or science or things like, you know, learning their times tables, retaining number facts, learning to tell the time. So there is a crossover, not just in English um, and in reading and writing, that we need to be really aware of.
2: I was a former high school teacher, Sarah, and I knew there were times that I would have a student in year eight that had only just been given that diagnosis and they have kind of wobbled through primary school. So what signs of dyslexia could a parent be able to observe in their own home?
3: It can be difficulties with learning and picking up rhymes, so understanding nursery rhymes and words that rhyme. Oh, really? Yes. It can be difficulties with word retrieval. So a really good example I used from my son many years ago in three-year-old kinder when I knew he had dyslexia was he wanted to use the word beach. But he couldn't find that word. So instead of saying beach, he went, you know that place we go, mum, where there's sand and there's sea and we go surfing and we build sandcastles, but all he needed was beach. So word retrieval can be a really good indicator. So he had lots of vocab there and the kinder teacher was, oh, I don't think he's got dyslexia. He's got lots of language. But he couldn't find that one word, which can in a classroom can be really inhibiting. But you might also see they don't want to just pick up a book for pleasure, particularly when they get to later primary. They may have difficulty with organising themselves, not always, but they may have challenges organising themselves or following instructions and not your routine instructions. So not routine, go and brush your teeth and brush your hair because you do that every day. But, you know, something you can try with them is to, okay, go and get me four forks and then get me three knives and five spoons and two plates. Because of the working memory component, they'll often struggle with that. That can be very frustrating as a parent, having lived through it, when you're asking to get ready in the morning and they're, they're still processing the first instruction and you've on to five instructions and want to get in the car and go to school. Things like conversations and those interactions, and that can also affect their peer relationship too. It's like, I guess, my, my analogy is you go into your brain and you open the filing cabinet and can they find the right filing cabinet for those words? Yeah. And they can't always, and that can have a, a big impact on, on the home.
2: Yeah, lots of kids forget stuff in the morning, but it is particularly hard for our neurodivergent kids.
3: Yeah, I mean, the other thing is though, the students with dyslexia, often they don't go from A to B to get there. They go from A, but they go via Z. So they've actually got a bigger picture thinking often. And those are the students that they're asking questions after questions after questions, but they're they're thinking about the end product. So another example of that is I remember with my daughter when she was pretty little and we were following a milk truck. Most most of my other a neurotypical middle child, I've got three, um, would say, that's a milk truck, that's cool, okay, let's move on. She wanted to know how the milk got in there, where it goes next, then what happens there, how does that happen, and she, she needed the whole picture. Um, she couldn't just be happy with the fact that there's milk in there and that's where it's going to the farm or it's come from the farm and she needed all those questions.
2: Oh, the endless questioning of children. It's really nice to know that there could be something else under that because they're trying to make sense of their world in a more complex complex way possibly than we're aware of.
3: Yeah, most definitely.
0: There's kids out there like Grace that the effort they put in is not necessarily recognised. We've got a daughter here who's amazingly gifted at being able to just talk to people and communicate verbally and be creative with things, but it's not necessarily recognised as a core value
1: trying to seek a diagnosis. You have to be prepared to go with your gut instinct and keep pushing ahead. We
3: started talking to the teacher and they just said, oh no, grade one's too early to raise concerns. She'll
2: catch up next year. And we foolishly believed her. What are the first steps that parents can take if if they suspect that their child is dyslexic? Yeah,
3: well, I think the first step, obviously, is to have that conversation with the school. Teachers may not know what to look for, so they may not know the answer there. But seeking that professional help, there's lots of screening and assessment that can be done, whether that's a speech and language pathologist, a specialist teacher, a specialist educator with additional training in, in children with specific learning difficulties. Something I would do straight away is I'd rule out any eye and ear, just a regular eye and ear check, not a behaviour optometrist, just a regular eye and ear check, just to make sure that that's all clear. And then they really need that intervention before you can get a diagnosis. So they need to have had six months intervention to be able to get that formal diagnosis if you're looking for a formal diagnosis. But I wouldn't wait. I'd just intervene as early as
2: possible. So what do you mean by early intervention?
3: So I'd get some supports. If, if the school aren't in a... a position to offer that that literacy intervention. So that literacy program, Um, try and find a specialist tutor or specialist educator or speech and language pathologist that can help to give some, you know, weekly intervention and support you as a parent to then go to the school and say, this is what we're doing. This is working. This is the help they need. They can use decodable books. They can use a structured program. There's some good apps and things that parents can pull from, from reading doctor to Nessie. Trust your instinct and go and, and speak up early.
2: Even if parents do identify that there might be an issue, Sarah, it's not always easy to get a diagnosis. So what barriers can parents face in getting the help they need?
3: Yeah, look, it is really challenging to get particularly now in the realms of after COVID and it's really hard to get therapists, allied health. There's really long wait lists and regional areas is even harder. The cost is, is really high as well. And also getting the right people. So parents are looking, obviously, to help their child and they want the best for them. So sometimes they get led down the wrong path and led to the snake oil path or the coloured lenses are a Mm -hmm. quick fix or, you know, let's go and put these coloured overlays and that will fix their their reading. Well, it's it's not because it's neurological. Sometimes poor parents are are led in the wrong
2: direction. Children are so desperate to belong, they often mask the symptoms and often other issues associated with that not coping like anxiety or depression or, um, you know, they just get really stressed in those spaces and that becomes more apparent than a possible dyslexia diagnosis. So Sarah, you've been through this as a mum and you're also an educator. So you've seen it from both sides. What barriers do children with dyslexia face in the classroom? And let's probably start with the primary school ones.
3: There's lots of lots of people out there say, well, it's dyslexia is a gift. Um, I certainly neither of my children would say that. My children would say it's really hard every day. Mum at school. I have one now in grade six. Reading's really hard for him. Homework's really hard for him. He's worked 110 percent through the day at school. He's burnt out and tired by the end of the day. So trying to have that battle with homework, don't do it if you're a parent. It's not worth it. Students dyslexia have to work harder than everybody else through the day. Behaviour can come out as well. They can, you know, become the, the student that because they're not succeeding, you might see some behaviours that are not wanted um, and then they can be labelled in another way which is not positive for the student. We've got to keep that advocacy there and advocacy really early. If we get the supports right in primary school it actually makes it much much easier for secondary school and certainly when they get to year 12 to get the accommodations they need.
2: So let's move on into the high school. So if it's not picked up in primary when things get you know more intense and more complicated. I know that it can really impact behaviour, but what other things can happen in that setting? And then what else can parents do there?
3: Yeah, well, certainly high school's Yeah, very close to my heart. So I have a year 10 daughter who we've had bouts of school refusal. We've had mental health issues. We've had a lot of issues at, at school because you're dealing with eight teachers a day. Uh, and that's really complex and different demands. It can lead to huge mental health problems um, and huge self-esteem problems. We have changed schools at high school. We've done a period of virtual schools as well, online schooling. We're back now and we've had 100% attendance this year, which is fabulous. But it's taken, and that's me with all my knowledge, it's still been a real challenge at secondary school. I mean, we had one incident in year seven. She just started and we had a discussion at the secondary school and they said, oh, I think she needs a reduced English curriculum. And I said, well, how will that feed through to year 12? Oh, she won't be able to do VCE. I said, you've only known her a month and so you've written off VCE already. That baffles me that with the right support, she's had the right support. She sat NAPLAN in three and five in primary school with the right supports and with a scribe and and did fairly well. If I'd gone that route and not known and not questioned it, that would have been a real problem. We would have written off her opportunities and closed some doors for her. We need to make sure they've got the right supports and it is hard. But we're, we're so lucky with the technology that's here now that they can easily support them.
2: We know, teachers today, they are busier than ever and they don't always have the latest knowledge, time or the resources to help kids with specific needs in the classroom. What can parents do to advocate for their children at school and what does that actually mean?
3: I think the first thing parents need to do is trust their gut because often their gut instinct is if there's something not right or if they're struggling, they listen to their child and say, well, yes, they're not They're not getting reading. Why are they not getting it? Let's go and have that conversation early. The parents are going to have to be that bull at the gate, that you know, that knocking on the door. You're going to have to be the advocate until they can advocate for themselves. And I would be taking them some of the evidence of the things that works. That Again, it's quite easy to find that now with the social media explosion. You can find that evidence and, and say to them, look, this is what we found and direct them. If you go in and try and build that partnership with the teacher, because again, it's not the teacher's fault. They may not have had any training in dyslexia at all. They may have had some, depending on which university they've come from. But if you work together and, and upskill, you know, it's going to help we know what's best practice for students with dyslexia is actually best practice for everyone to learn to read. So it will help all of them. And there's lots of things like we offer audiobooks from all the grade two novels to grade six. Everybody gets the audiobook. They don't just, it's not just given to the students who've got dyslexia, it's given to everyone. There's lots of universal
2: principles that support everybody. Sarah, you've mentioned resources like scribes and special teachers that can be available. Are they possible in all our schools? Is there enough funding? And then how can parents get that help?
3: Yes, I believe it is possible in every school. We need to upskill principals and teachers, not just teachers, because the principals lead the you know where the funds are used. But again, parents will need to, I guess, come to the teacher and say, "Look, I really need an individual learning plan. I need I need some documentation. I, he's really struggling, or if they're behind and they're not sitting where they should be on the curriculum levels, the parents are going to have to sometimes push for those supports and document, document, document." So, if you're a parent keeping every document, because when you get to secondary, you're going to need that history to be able to get the accommodations you need in a secondary setting.
1: I managed to just kind of talk my way through high school and avoiding assignments and a lot of missed attendance, if I'm being honest. And then I reached year 11 and I was going into VCE and I had to kind of reckon with myself for the first time. How do I study? How do I write an essay? How do I really sit down and focus and do this work? And that was completely (laughs) overwhelming. So I was very lucky to have a mum who organised a tutor for me. And then instantly within the first session, she saw it, picked it up and got me assessed. She was like, this is ridiculous. I don't know how you've come so far in school with no one picking this up. But I don't think that my story is super unique in terms of kids masking their dyslexia and learning disorders until very, very late, and then for all of a sudden they can't do Year 12.
2: You might be thinking, wow, there's a lot ringing true for my child here. But I don't have an official diagnosis, and I don't have the money or or the access to clinical services. Let me reassure you, the diagnosis doesn't have to be the first step. Dr Craig Wright is a psychologist at Understanding Minds and he helps young children and their families get to the bottom of their dyslexia. But even he says you don't have to wait for a diagnosis.
0: A lot of people sort of bounce around agonising over is it, isn't it, should I go see someone? You know, they have different people saying what it is and the next person saying no it's not, it's something else. Bottom line, dyslexia, a dyslexia is a problem with reading words. It's severity doesn't really matter. And then Get to work with someone who can help you identify what specific reading, spelling, writing behaviours are a problem and start working on, on those things. You don't actually have to wait for an assessment to begin that. And educate yourself. The more you learn about a dyslexia, the more you learn about your child and their individual presentation, including their strengths, the better you can advocate for them. End of the day, what you're looking for is is to help your child get success. Can't say that enough. And you're looking to prepare them for the demands of life.
2: Now, Craig, many parents will worry that a dyslexia diagnosis will mean a lifetime of struggle for their kids. What do you want parents to know?
0: Almost everyone finds a way and we have to be careful not to catastrophize about the eight-year-old who's having difficulty now. There's a pretty fair chance that by the time they're an adult, 25, 30, they're going to be successful in life with good relationships, making money, paying tax, etc. So you've got to keep it positive and see... I think a lot of my colleagues have caused a lot of stress by insisting on intensive intervention. So we have this six-, seven-, eight-year-old who's having difficulties at the moment. We have to do this intervention four times a week, five times a week, 30 minutes a day, and it stresses the whole family system, not only financially, but everyone's nervous system is, is pinging. And, yeah, in doing that, you, you make some you know, relatively rapid change, but then the demands of the classroom change and the kid has difficulty with the next lot of skills. It, it's a long-term process. You, you've got to see it as a long-term process of getting the kid to the end of school, one, being happy and sane, (laughs) two, recognising that school and learning tasks are an opportunity to get reinforcement, they're they're rewarding, but also literate enough to cope with the demands of life.
1: And And That's it, literate
0: enough. It doesn't have to be in the 90th percentile. It's literate enough to cope with what you want to do next.
1: If I could go back in time before I started primary school and tell my parents that I do have learning disorders and that they should be addressed, I would do it in a heartbeat just to save so much unnecessary frustration and unrecognition and just unnecessary pain of going through a system with a disability. So many things can be incredibly frustrating about having dyslexia, feeling as if you are not equal to your peers in school particularly, feeling as if your world value and your perspective isn't valued, feeling like you're not being paid attention to. Because so many kids with dyslexia can get through school and do manage to kind of get by by building up other adaptive skills. But you're still kind of left in the dark in terms of getting your needs met in the classroom to be in a traditional school system with dyslexia. And it's not that I was disabled. It's just the way that I was being taught disabled me. It's the social model of disability.
2: If you have kids who appear to be struggling, especially around reading and writing, or they're expressing school reluctance, please don't dismiss them. Really listen to them and then start exploring what is happening. Start with their teacher or their teachers. And then check out some of the sites we mentioned and educate yourself and your child. Please advocate for your child all the way through school. Be patient, really patient. Support them, encourage them and reassure them that grades at school will never define who they really are or who they can become. Maybe drop Albert Einstein's name in from time to time. (laughs) And then, most importantly, focus on their natural strengths, because every kid has natural strengths, and their passions in life, and marinate them in endless, ferocious, unconditional love. School and classrooms can be tough for a lot of kids. So what do you do if your kid is refusing to go to school?
0: Most of the time, it's a, it's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's a sense of failure in some way for a young person. Now, that could be academically. They feel like they're just not doing well in the classroom and so it becomes a place that they'd rather not be.
2: We have a companion episode for exactly that. It's called When Your Kid Hates School and you can find it by scrolling back in the Parental Anything podcast feed or searching for it on the ABC Listen app. Next time, making sure your teenager gets enough sleep can be a huge battle for you and them.
0: Digital technology, screens late at night, this stuff is so much fun. It is so engaging, it's so addictive. And in contrast, sleep is, to many teenagers, sleep is boring.
2: Why is sleep so vital for teens and how do you make sure they're getting enough? That's next on Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent. This episode of Parental as Anything was recorded and produced on Gadigal, Kombamere and Woiwurrung Country. It all began with a scary online incident.
0: Do you like to do bad things?
2: But then Today it became the a bigger issue. Finale. How to manage 13-year-old Ruby's screen time. Other parents get in your head. Oh, my child never goes on social media. My children are free-range organic out in the backyard, don't even own an iPad. It's an issue every parent has to grapple with. How hard to crack down. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Follow Sarah's search for answers on Earshot. Just look for Follow Me Down the Rabbit Hole on the ABC Listen app.